Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. We're coming to you on a Saturday because the news uh, obviously demands it here. Big, big news to talk about today. Yeah, we're we're out of our norm- normal show cycle, but for good reason. Amy Coney Barrett was just nominated to sit on the Supreme Court, and of course we want to talk about it. And we wouldn't want to uh, have anyone think that we were giving short shrift to uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, we we sort of split this week up uh, based on the, the the odd timing. You know, our, our last week's show dropped uh, right before we were sort of blindsided like the rest of the country uh, by the passing of the of the justice. Um, so, you know, our sister show, The Term, uh, did a whole look back at Ruth Bader Ginsburg's career and her rulings and her legacy and uh we released that on on our feed everyone should go give that episode a listen um it's really great this week we're gonna try to really orient you for um you know who amy coney barrett is what comes next in this process and I would uh, that I, I second all of that. Everyone should check out the term. I would also direct you to our website. We there was a bunch of great coverage from all around the newsroom today about uh, Ginsburg's legacy and her her major rulings and the effect that she had on women in the law. Highly recommended. It. It's all in front of the paywall, so definitely check it out if that's interesting. To yeah, you. particularly that piece on women in the law. I thought it was really so impactful to hear about. I mean, I think people talk about her legacy about you know, women's rights writ large, but hearing about how she truly impacted female attorneys, really powerful. So definitely read that before you move on to Amy Coney Barrett. But so uh, let's 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 get sort of a basic outline here of I think Amy Coney Barrett was the was the front runner here. Not sure. not necessarily a surprising pick, but but um, if we you know, Amber, maybe maybe orient us with some basic details, a basic bio about who this, uh, you know, potential next justice is. Yeah. Let me start with just some biographical stuff. I mean, I think we just need to understand who she is. First of all, mm-hmm. she's probably at this point a name that our listeners may have heard about before because she's been under consideration as a potential Supreme Court nominee in the past. She yeah. was considered in the round where Kavanaugh was ultimately the selection. Mm-hmm. Um, but about Amy Coney Barrett, she's young. She's only 48. She's a devout Catholic. Um, she was born in New Orleans in 1972. She's the oldest of seven children. And she now has seven children of her own. So really big family she comes from. Mm-hmm. Her father was an attorney for Shell Oil. And she earned a bachelor's degree in English Lit from Rhodes College and then a JD from Notre Dame in 1997. She's worked at some well-known law firms. She was an associate at Covington and Burling. And then she clerked for some high-profile judges, first at the D.C. Circuit under Lawrence Silberman and then for Justice Anton Scalia. So she's yeah, this got, is how this is how she got shortlisted to replace him, even though definitely. it didn't uh, didn't end up panning out that time. But she's very much in that mold. Yeah, and after her years of being a clerk for those two judges, she uh, worked in private practice for a short stint. But then she moved on to a pretty long term career in in the academic world. She um, in 2002 went back to her alma mater, Notre Dame, to work at the law school there. She taught classes on constitutional law, civ pro, evidence federal courts, statutory interpretation. It literally is just a litany of things that come up before the Supreme Court. So you can see how her background's all sort of leading this direction. Um, Later in 2017, she was nominated to the Seventh Circuit. She had a fairly contentious confirmation process for that, but she was ultimately confirmed. The vote was 55 to 43. 
that gives us an idea of, like you say, Amber, the sort of the sort of vitals on Amy Coney Barrett, where she came from, a little bit. But I think it's also important to note um, she had sort of a unique path to the court in that she only has um, she was in academia for a long time, and obviously she's you know been been published lots of places. Let's talk about the sort of profile she's cut for herself um, in the legal space and in, in uh, sort of a in what is you know been a been a pretty brief career so far, but certainly prolific. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't think it will surprise anyone that she is a uh, rather conservative uh, uh, jurist um, and and scholar. Uh, as Amber mentioned, she spent a long uh, the majority of her career in in academia. You know, uh, where you you obviously aren't issuing rulings, but you have lots of opportunities to express your views, perhaps even more directly, more creatively than you would in the court. Um, on things like constitutional law and statutory interpretation, the role of precedent, lots of stuff about stare decisis. Um, uh, she expounds the virtues of of originalism, of textualism. The you know the sort of the 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 standard uh, conservative jurist on on, on that front. Um, as Amber mentioned, she clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, who, who obviously uh, was a was a huge proponent of of those two sort of uh, uh, you know overlapping schools of yeah. thought. Um, one aspect of her profile that's been discussed a lot in the in the lead up to the pick was her uh, her Catholic faith. Um, Barrett uh, was already on various short lists when Trump took office, but her stock rose rather dramatically. Uh, with with religious conservatives, with the religious right, after Democrats during um, during her Senate confirmation hearing seized on her rather devout uh, uh, Catholic faith to question whether or not she could be a an impartial judge could could reconcile you know her her faith with a sort of neutral application of the law. Uh, there was one exchange in particular between Barrett and uh, California Senator Dianne Feinstein that that really made waves. I think whatever a religion is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in, in your case, uh, Professor, when you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And... That's of concern. Yeah, guys, I remember that clip pretty vividly because I it became almost like a meme that dogma lives strongly within you stuff. Um, I think conservatives sort of embraced it almost as a badge of honor that that yeah. was sure. an accusation hurled her way. So a lot of people might remember that bit of questioning. Yeah, and and it's it's uh, another aspect, sort of a similar vein here that has surfaced is. Barrett's reported membership in this this so-called charismatic Christian community that's called People of Praise. Um, you know, it's not a ton is known about this group, but it's a it's a small uh, group of of devoutly Christian people. And um, uh, you know, p- part of membership in the group apparently involves this uh, swearing a a lifelong covenant to the group. There was some some reports about. Uh, that that women in the group were once labeled as as handmaids, which drew all sorts yeah. of uh, they pledge fealty to your husband and the family. Yeah, and it drew comparisons to mm-hmm. to the the dystopian uh, uh, Handmaid's Tale that was on Hulu. Yeah. So it's it's it has just added another wrinkle here of you know whether or not you're a supporter or a critic of of Amy Coney Barrett. Just another thing that people have been yeah. talking a lot I mean- about. 
And undoubtedly, you know, whether or not you believe in those comparisons to that TV show or if you think this is all sort of a silly thing to consider, at the very least, I think it underlines that this will come up in her confirmation hearings. There's, sure. Yeah. It's very likely to be a line of questioning about if she can keep her religious beliefs separate from what she does on the bench. So when we're talking about her actual profile, as we've as we've mentioned a few times already, her time on the bench was was fairly brief, about just about two years. Um, and we'll get into her rulings a little bit later in the show. Um, mm-hmm. And she, she she had before she was in academia, she had fairly little in the way of private practice cases that, you know, uh, cases she brought, cases she litigated to dissect for insight there. So the, the, the one real thing you can look at is, is you know, her, her the, that time she spent at Notre Dame and, and the, the sort of prolific writings and statements and speeches that she's given about various positions, positions about the law. Um, one thing that has immediately drawn attention is uh, her uh, previous comments that she's made about the Affordable Care Act, uh, also known as Obamacare, mm-hmm. if she is quickly confirmed by the Senate, uh, she will take part in, presumably will take part in a, a critical case that is aiming to strike down Obamacare. Uh, that's important because in 2017, she criticized Chief Justice John Roberts and his 2012 decision that very famously upheld Obamacare, uh, saying that that the Chief Justice had, quote, Push the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. So it's not a situation where she's, you know, a sixth vote and would yeah. would perhaps vote this way. She's on the record as saying, uh, you know, to as as criticizing the the very ruling that that saved that statute. Um, the other thing that that will really obviously be a lightning rod here is what sh- her appointment to the high court will mean for the future of Roe v. Wade and the the, the legality of abortion in, in America. Um, whoever Trump was going to nominate was going to was going to you know generate this conversation. They were invariably going to be conservative. That that was going to come up anyway. Yeah. But I think Barrett has raised particular concerns about uh, about abortion rights at, from from abortion rights advocates because of things that she has said about it in the past. In 2013, she said that Roe v. Wade, quote, essentially permitted abortion on demand. Uh, in 2003, she wrote an article that argued stare decisis should become more, quote, flexible uh, because it sometimes requires courts to follow uh, rulings that were wrongly decided. So you y- you have this situation where it, that was already going to be something that people on the left were very concerned about as mm-hmm. as she moves on to the bench. But but some of these things that she said in the past really even pushes that even further to the fore. This is probably a good time as any to actually get into some of the decisions that she's handed down as a member of the Seventh Circuit. And I think the abortion cases are probably a good place to start um there were there's just a there's a couple to discuss here that i think are pretty instructive in 2019 it's a case called planned parenthood v indiana and uh barrett was at really at the center of this battle over an indiana law and this is somewhat unpleasant to talk about like most um uh you know abortion cases are but this is this is why it's such an important issue um this indiana law banned abortions that were performed due to the fetus's sex, race, or disability, and also required aborted fetuses to be buried or cremated rather than sort of, you know, disposed of with other sort of medical waste. Mm-hmm. So the Seventh Circuit struck the law down as just in, in, impinging on basic on, on the basic holdings of Roe and also Casey and like certain other sort of bedrock Supreme Court abortion cases. 
But Barrett signed on to a dissent uh, that basically called for an intervention from the Supreme Court. And the the dissent said that the Indiana law um, regarding this this issue about, you know, parents uh, or prospective mothers aborting their children because of their race or gender or disabilities. uh, The dissent basically said that the law was meant to stop parents from, quote, using abortion as a way to promote eugenic goals. And obviously that's like. A hugely charged thing, because even, you know, you, you, who, you, what, what reasonable person could sit there and be like, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of eugenics. But arguments like that, like, really are, are, are very toxic in the view of pro-choice activists who say it's basically like this, this bad faith, you know, workaround to try and mix up one person's right to choose with, like, state-mandated reproductive control. And right. that's what they sort of say that the dissent is calling for in that regard. So, you know, the, the, the law was struck down, but the the dissenters, including Barrett, uh, were not too happy about it. So the law was actually struck down, though. So why does this remain one we're talking about now? Yeah, well, this is pretty, this is pretty, this is why people discuss dissents, especially at the appellate court level. So Indiana actually took this up to the Supreme Court. The justices declined to review this part of the law about the about limiting the reasons for abortion. But Clarence Thomas um, wrote a, like a, wrote a 20-page opinion that borrowed a lot of the language from this dissent that Barrett signed on to and said the court will, uh, quote, will soon need to confront the constitutionality of laws like Indiana's. And he, he again said that it was something akin to, quote, modern day eugenics. And so um, it, that's obviously very interesting because you have now this judge who was very vocal on this issue, signed on to this dissent, asked the Supreme Court to eventually look at a case like this. Now she is, you know, a few weeks away from perhaps sitting on the Supreme Court herself. So um, that's just like this is like a very this is this is something that people were watching very closely. And you can definitely see why Um, the other uh, the other sort of big abortion ruling that a lot of people that's gotten dusted off in the the time since Barrett's name floated to the top of the list here um, was, uh, again, it was a dissent that she signed on to that expressed reservations about the use of basically federal injunctions to stop anti-abortion laws from taking effect. So again, last year in 2019, Seventh Circuit uh, barred Indiana from enforcing this law that required parents um, to be notified of a minor's intent to get an abortion. Um, and Judge Barrett joined a, a joined a dissent that was trying to sort of get that reheard um, and get the law back on its feet. And basically what they're saying, it's a basic sort of federalism approach to this to 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 the abortion to to the abortion issue and she basically said that the court should not should not be so willing to block a state law entirely uh the quote from the dissent that she joined was given the existing unsettled status of pre-enforcement challenges in the abortion context i believe this issue should be should be decided by our full court preventing a state statute from taking effect is a judicial act of extraordinary gravity in our federal structure so that also sort of gets to what we were talking about the sort of an unobtrusive judiciary that doesn't, you know, that, that you're, you're meddling in the legislature if you prevent it from taking effect uh, before, uh, you know, you're preemptively, which obviously carries even even greater weight in the abortion context. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take us into another real hot button issue. Um, I think abortion, of course, is one that is top of mind, but yeah. so is immigration, which has mm-hmm. made its way to the high court 
repeatedly in recent years, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of that stopping soon. And and, and is likely to do so again. Yeah, absolutely. So one that I wanted to bring up is called Cook County versus Chad F. Wolf. It's a where a Seventh Circuit panel blocked the Trump administration from enforcing its public charge rule. That public Mm -hmm. charge rule is where... um, it would bar non-citizens from getting a green card if they mm-hmm. were ever on public assistance. So things mm-hmm. like food stamps and and any kind of welfare style program. Um, Judge Merritt dissented from that, saying the government had the power to do this. Mm-hmm. The majority in the case said this public charge rule penalizes green card applicants who maybe have used public assistance, but Congress has explicitly intended for these types of immigrants to have access to those programs. Mm-hmm. Barrett, on the other hand, said... You know, she she went into what I think we're all starting to suspect as we learn more about her her jurisprudence. She went into quite a bit of statutory analysis when she looked at this. And ultimately, she said the Department of Homeland Security's stance on public charge is not unreasonable when looked at through the lens of, of these statutes, especially considering, quote, The text of the current statute was amended in 1996 to increase the bite of the public charge determination. Right. So she's, um, I think we learn a couple things here. One, she seems like she's going to stand on the side of uh, the government restricting immigration in in a variety of ways, particularly if she can find um, statutory interpretation that that goes along with that. She is definitely a textualist, as we've said a few times. I also have a second one I want to talk about. It is... um, again, a flashpoint issue here. This one's Doe versus Purdue University. This is about campus sexual assault and discrimination. So Mm -hmm. some hot button issues again. Barrett wrote for the Seventh Circuit panel that revived a lawsuit against Purdue University, accusing that school of discriminating um, when it suspended a male student who was accused of sexual assault. So in what Barrett wrote, she didn't actually make it to the merits. This was just getting the case revived. Mm-hmm. Um, but she ruled that it was at least plausible that the school, quote, chose to believe Jane because she is a woman and to disbelieve John because he is a man. And she went on to say that that could potentially violate Title IX and also the 14th Amendment. What sort of informed her? I mean, I, in the, in the, I, I remember this case coming sort of in the throes of the Me Too sort of discourse. What what informed her her analysis that it was plausible that there was like like facial discrimination here because you know yeah against, against um, the man a, there's a few things at play here so yeah. she said that the um, man in question the one who was suspended from the school um, said that his claims about not having committed the sexual assault were at least plausible and then she went on to explain that the university was under pressure at the time to report a higher number of sexual assault punishments mm-hmm. to to the Department of Education mm. and on top of that, she pointed to some social media posts by Purdue's campus office that supports sexual assault victims. They reposted a Washington Post article with this title, Alcohol Isn't the Cause of Campus Sexual Assault, Men Are. And she said that the article paired with his defenses meant that, quote, it could be understood to blame men as a class for the problems of campus sexual assault rather than the individuals who commit sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of parsing there between men as a group versus individually accused people getting a essentially a, a fair hearing of what happened. So she also went on to say that Purdue's process really fell short and said it, quote, fell short of even what a high school must provide to a student facing a days long suspension. 
Yeah, I feel like we're going through going as we've noted with each of these, they hit on very uh, you know sensitive subjects in 2020 America, um, and uh, perhaps no more so than than gun control, which is for the uh, the next case we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we got somewhat of a sense of how Barrett feels about gun control in a case called Cantor v. Barr, um, which uh, it dealt with a Wisconsin state statute that forbid felons from possessing firearms. Um, so a, a three-judge panel of the Seventh Circuit uh, uh, upheld this Wisconsin state statute, rejecting the claim that it violated the Second Amendment. What they basically said was, the government has a pretty important and and reasonable interest in preventing felons from having guns. They didn't just pick this out of nowhere and and impose it in a way that would violate the Second Amendment. They picked something that they really needed to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, by now, we've pretty firmly established Coney Barrett's sort of conservative jurist bona fides. So I would imagine in a gun control case or in a, in a case that sort of um, upheld a gun control measure, she uh, she had a had a, had a dissent, I would imagine. Yeah, it was interesting. So she 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 argued that it was the the law was too sweeping to pass constitutional muster under the Second Amendment. Um, that the challenger here the the w- was a person who had been convicted of a of a nonviolent crime, mm-hmm. uh, and the argument here was that this statute doesn't distinguish between violent versus nonviolent ex cons, and that there's more you know that there's a Sure, there's a reasonable uh, uh, interest in preventing violent felons from having guns, but maybe not for nonviolent ex-felons. The quote, legislatures have the power to prohibit dangerous people from possessing guns, but that power extends only to people who are dangerous. Founding era legislatures did not strip felons of the right to bear arms simply because of their status as felons. So I mean, you got a few things there. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, she's gonna she's gonna scrutinize any sort of uh, regulation that that impinges on that Second Amendment right, and also really gonna look back to to that founding era in a way that we've seen conservative justices do in yeah. uh, in in recent decades. Um, the other big before we before we get out of here, the other big uh, case that we wanted to highlight uh, from. Judge Barrett was a case called Schmidt v. Foster, which is uh, it deals with the right to counsel in a criminal mm-hmm. case. Yeah, um, Barrett was again a, uh, a a dissenting voice here from from a from a majority ruling. Um, th- the case dealt with a pretrial hearing for a man who had been accused of killing his wife. The guy argued that he had been provoked into doing this which if mm-hmm. proven would have reduced his crime from a first degree homicide to a second degree uh the judge the trial judge here considered that argument but at a hearing that wasn't attended by prosecutors and uh during which the defendant's attorneys were not allowed to speak the judge eventually rejected this and found that uh, uh that that it was a first degree homicide mm-hmm. um a Seventh Circuit majority, a panel, ruled that the trial judge had improperly denied the assistance of counsel to this uh, to this defendant. But Judge Barrett, again, as I mentioned before, dissented, uh, arguing that the hearing was not uh, the, the the trial-like confrontation that entitles a petitioner to counsel. Uh, the quote. The majority says that this ex parte and in-camera proceeding was a critical stage, but the court's critical stage precedent deals exclusively with adversarial confrontations between the defendant and an agent of the state. 
So in that situation, she said, no, this isn't a situation where you where you are entitled to uh, to the assistance of counsel or certainly not enough to to overturn this uh, this outcome. We have so many cases here that hit on all of sort of the the issues that not just us legal nerds pay attention to, but things that really are impactful on people's lives that people turn to the Supreme Court for all the time. So I think we're going to have a lot to unpack if she gets seated um, and starts hearing cases in these big buckets of issues. And we should note that we will be getting back to our uh, regular programming schedule. So we'll have a show for you nice and quick in the, just about five days. So perhaps we'll have more on Amy Coney Barrett. Perhaps we will be talking about uh, non-Supreme Court cases. But, uh, but we'll be back with you soon. Well, thanks for being with me on this Saturday, guys, to break it all down. Thanks a lot, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and really our entire newsroom that many people have been working on stories about, both the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and also this nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. If you want to read anything we have on those topics, they're actually outside of our paywall at Law360, so just head on over to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. And if you liked our show today, please leave us a review wherever you're listening. That really helps other people find our show. See you again next week.